0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Jeff Sparrow and Tony Birch, two old friends, discuss the very nature of capitalism and the environmental crisis. Sparrow's new book, Crimes Against Nature, uses fresh material to offer a very different take on the most important issue of our times. It takes the familiar narrative about global warming, the one in which we are all to blame, and inverts it to show how, again and again, pollution and ecological devastation have been imposed on the population without our consent and, often, against our will. From histories of destruction, it distils stories of hope, highlighting the repeated yearning for a more sustainable world. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: Ah, now here I am wanting to welcome you to this readings event, this readings scribe event. Wherever we are, wherever we're coming from, wherever we've been, if it's in Australia, you've been on stolen ground. You've been on land that's not been ceded. And I know that when I give these acknowledgements of country, it's important that we send respect to our elders and tell where we are and where we're from. But I reckon in 2022, In a community like the one that we've got here tonight, that's not enough. It's not enough just to say, hey, I'm sorry. It's not enough to send our respects. I'd like all of us here today to consider making a commitment to reading the stories of the First Nations people, to reading their poetry, to listening to their stories and for slowly, slowly taking on some of the messages that the First Nations people have been telling us and consider ourselves to be quiet while we're listening to those people. And I want to introduce you to Professor Tony Birch. Now listen, Tony is one of these blokes that has been coming into reading since the doors opened. He's one of these people that has never ever had his appetite filled with the stories that he's read. This is a bloke That's always got something to ask, that's always got something to share. He's going to be talking tonight to his mate, Jeff Sparrow. They met only 35 years ago. It feels like yesterday, they are still asking each other what happened and why did that happen? And on behalf of readings and on behalf of Scribe and on behalf of each and every one of you here today, I want you to give Tony Birch, author presenter, commentator, activist, the greatest, greatest welcome. Over to you, Tony.
2: Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, I have known um, our guests tonight for well over 30 years and I have been going to Reading's Bookshop for a long, long time. I don't steal the books any longer. I think if you're selling your books, you, you shouldn't be walking out the door with them. I want to thank Readings very much, though, quite seriously for putting on this event. In the last two years in particular, there are many ways that people have really suffered because of the um, COVID crisis. And one of them, um, not the most major one, but one of them is the um, disconnect that has occurred between writers and readers, between writers and audiences, and Readings obviously are a massive part of that. The Zoom events that Readings have put on have been a remarkable substitute and a great support to keep us connected. Chris in particular and other staff at Readings have done a great job to ensure that um, our audiences still get a sense of um, what we're doing as writers and the books we're writing. So I want to thank Readings in particular. I also want to thank the audience. We always say, I think, or we've said many times over the last few years, we're Zoomed out, and I've heard many a person say, I'm not going to do one more Zoom event as long as I live. And then you get the opportunity to speak to someone like Jeff Sparrow and you think, well, that's an exception. And I think what it really attests to is that as much as this isn't the ideal format and we would love to be with each other in person, we're still able to engage and to get great ideas, important ideas across to a public and, of course, speak to a great writer like Jeff. I want to formally introduce Jeff, and then we'll get straight into a discussion of the book. But to remind people, we really want people to be engaged tonight. If you have questions, please put them to Chris Gordon and they'll come to us through the chat function and we'll make sure that we get to some questions and we aim to finish up promptly at about 7.15. So please ask your questions as soon as you want to and we'll either ask them now Or we'll certainly look at them soon after 7 o'clock. So I do want to formally introduce Jess. So Jess Sparrow is a writer, editor, broadcaster and Walkley Award-winning journalist. He's a columnist for The Guardian Australia, a former breakfaster at Melbourne's Free Triple R and a past editor of Overland Literary Journal. His most recent books are Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and The Christchurch Massacre, Trigger Warnings, at Political Correctness and The Rise of the Right, And no way but this in search of Paul Robeson. And he currently lectures at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. And the book that we're talking about tonight, is Jeff Sparrow's Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating, which is here. What I'd like to say to add to that before I get Jeff to give us a broad sweep of what the book is doing, is that. One of the um, aspects of great admiration I do have for Jeff Sparrow is that I certainly did meet him when we were both undergraduate students at University of Melbourne. He was, like we all were at the time, pretty fired-up activists in relationships around education, in relationship to to peace activism and relationship to the rights of working people. And what I admire so much about Jeff is that if he's mellowed and matured at all, which he may have, He has never given up the struggle for the rights of people, for the struggle for, I think, the human rights and decency that we're all entitled to, and he's someone who's really stuck with this. I remember talking to Jeff at the Sydney Writers Festival several years ago and we were both feeling a little bit jaded about the the state of the world and, and why wouldn't you, but he's always come back to do the hard work and he's always come back to do that in a very energetic way and I really have great admiration for Jeff in doing that. Some of our fellow travelers turned into neoliberals administering universities, um, but the rest of us have stayed the course. And I'm really pleased that Jeff has, and certainly that he has done so with this important book. So I want to ask you, in some ways, Jeff, a, a simple but extended question. And I'd like you to tell us what did you set out to do with this book, and what do you hope your readers will get from reading this book?
3: Thanks, Tony, and thanks for suggesting um, this event too. I mean, for, for people watching, this, this, this event was actually inspired by Tony on on, um, on Facebook, um, suggesting that we have a chat, which was very kind of. Just want to also say, when you are recalling Melbourne University back in the days, we were just chatting before we came on here about both being members of the Education Action Group both at a time when we were making the case that um, the Labor Party was um, about to reintroduce full fees, Everyone at the time said, no, no, that's scaremongering. That will never happen. The university will always be free. It will never be corporatized." Who was right and who was wrong about that particular debate? In terms of the book, though, look, in some ways it comes from a very similar place. I mean... We are all concerned about climate change. You know, you you can't be a political person today or even someone who's vaguely conscious of what's happening in the world and not be conscious that climate change is an existential threat. At the same time, I think I'm not alone in often finding climate change to be such a grim issue that I don't want to face up to it. You you know, like if you're on the left, if you're a progressive, you're tackling all sorts of things that are bleak, but there's something particularly debilitating about reading stories about, you know, the devastation of particular regions or the extinctions that that are taking place or just the sort of grinding inevitability of climate change. And I wanted to find a way to talk about it that somehow cut through that debilitating sense of um, almost existential awfulness because I think it's politically paralyzing. And one of the reasons I, I think that we have that sense of hopelessness around climate change is that the way the issue is so often presented is that it's our fault that climate change is something that we are all responsible for as human beings, that's one version of the argument, or another version of the argument is that that working-class people, the masses are actually the most responsible for it, you know? So you get a presentation of the climate change issue which says, okay, there are all these enlightened neoliberal leaders who wanna clean up the world, but you people are so greedy and so selfish, you just wanna use your cars and, and pollute the planet and you won't change your ways. And because of that, the whole world is being destroyed. And of course, If if you if you pose the issue like that, if you pose the issue that ordinary people are the problem because of their habits, or indeed in some versions simply by existing then of course it's debilitating and of, of of course it's disempowering and of course it doesn't seem like there are any solutions possible. So what I try to do in this book is to, to flip the issue around and to show the really clear history that shows again and again and again the worst attacks on the natural world have come from the people who rule us and again and again and again those attacks Have been resisted by ordinary people. And when you know that past I think it becomes a little bit easier to be positive about the prospect of coming to some sort of solution. So that was the impetus behind the book.
2: Thank you very much Um, and that's that's very clear. I do want to go back and look at some of the great historical examples that you give of, of political action. But I suppose at the outset I do, and in part this is to tease the idea out a bit more, and in part I think to deal with my own, similar to you, of, of at times thinking that I feel debilitated or that I felt stuck by what to do. I felt stuck about what sort of political action to take. I do want to tease this out a little more because I, I as I was reading the book I thought this is the question I want to ask Jeff. So I, I agree entirely that if we look at, the causes of climate change, there are, there are various forces, but we're certainly looking at the ferocious growth of capitalism from the Industrial Revolution and the insatiable burning of fossil fuels. That, of course, in fact, is also linked to global colonialism so that we know that in countries like Australia with the destruction of Indigenous land, we're looking at agricultural systems themselves that are to aid the Industrial Revolution back in Britain. We know that this is dominated by rogue states in some ways, by certainly quite vicious and violent colonial powers, and certainly in a contemporary sense, although historically as well, corporations. I'm very persuaded by your argument, but I wonder if, to ask the, the sort of devil's advocate question, is there a line of responsibility in the sense of, is there a trickle down to any point where you say, to what extent are we complicit at all in what's happening, or are we complicit in any way? And I suppose I would ask this on behalf often of First Nations communities and, and poorer communities, which can be you know, of any ilk, is that what do we say to communities who in fact do have a negligible carbon footprint, or, or I know we're critical of that term, if we say them, well, this is the fault of big government, this is the fault of corporations, this is not the fault of ordinary people, but in fact there are people in Indigenous communities who would see that as something, well, in a relative sense you are more responsible than myself, So I'm asking in a way to find, find yeah. ways where we find connections, not disconnections, but is there a, a level of complicity that we have to accept even if we're going to proactively demand change? Uh,
3: look, I think those are, are really important and um, interesting questions. On the first, I mean, there is always a kind of ethical imperative for individuals. People can make choices And they do make choices and we've got responsibilities about the choices that we as individuals make. But I guess the point that I try to make throughout the book is that over and over again, the space that we have to make those decisions become consciously and deliberately limited by the people who run society. So, you know, a really sort of obvious in some senses example. A few years ago, we learnt recycling in Australia was basically a fraud that all of the the garbage that we were all recycling was just being sent over to developing countries where it was essentially just buried in landfill. None of it was being recycled at at, at all. So for years and years and years, we had been told, this is what you should do to to fight the climate crisis. And it was all bullshit. And again and again, I'll go through this in, in the book, but recycling is a particularly clear case. The people who are in charge of these programs know that this is the case. They know that this is the case, and they. but they also know that if they can make us feel that this is our responsibility and not theirs, it prevents us from asking the more important questions, which are why, uh, you know, all our household goods coded in non-disposable coverings that we can't, we have no choice about. You know, I mean, I talk in the book that when plastic wrappers were first introduced, there was an outcry from the public. People didn't want it. They were accustomed to recycling everything and they were essentially forced by the corporations to accept it. And I think the other aspect of it, which maybe touches slightly on your second point, is I think the nature of the system forces us to play a role, a negative role in relation to other people. I mean, I have a chapter writing about Indigenous Australia Mm -hmm. and um, the environment, and because I think that, Australians are actually in a really privileged position and need to educate ourselves about this history because we have an example in front of us of, you know, a, a continuous culture that, 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 that existed on this continent that lived for thousands and thousands of years and, in fact, made the environment better and not worse. Mm. And that's tremendously important because if you once you accept that, if it's happened in the past, It can happen in the future. It's not impossible for human beings to live in such a way that we improve ecosystems rather than um, destroy them. And that culture was destroyed by um, 1788, white colonisation imposing a capitalist logic which made the traditional way of managing land impossible. I think it's a good example of what you're talking about before because, of course, the people who often were most responsible for dispersing and dispossessing Indigenous people were often um, convicts who had been sent here against their will when their lands had been dispersed by um, the Industrial Revolution in Britain. So those people were, in a sense, the ones most responsible for dispossession. They were the shepherds who were, you know, driving indigenous people away. But there's a sense in which the system in itself is forcing them into that situation. I mean, again, it's a complicated history, but I guess that's the sort of argument that I want to make. Yeah,
2: but I I think that there is a... Or well, more than an irony, I think there's a tragedy contained in that because one of the issues that one of the issues that you write about, I think, that really is quite effective, is that it, along with the industrial revolution and the burning of fossil fuels, we get the growth of these metropolis. Yeah, the metropolis. And you talk about the charters, You talk about workers who were going into that enforced factory system, a regulated system, a time managed system, where previously they're attitude and engagement with, with labour was very different. So the Industrial Revolution and the burning of fossil fuels not only regulates people to a, a fairly horrendous system, people talk quite proactively, and I know the charters did, about the loss of um, context and contact with what might be called nature. But basically, they're not calling it nature. They're calling it nature's not out there. Nature was part of their lives as well. So that they were surrounded by fields, they were surrounded by fresh air and they suddenly get put into these infernos and they lose all contact with the natural world.
3: Yeah and I think this is a really profound point because it's really easy for us to accept a version of environmentalism which says something like there are people here and there are nature over there and there's a conflict between the two and what environmentalism means protecting the wilderness from human beings. But Of course, that's an argument that doesn't actually make any sense because, in in fact, human beings have been altering nature throughout history. Humans are part of nature. Humans depend upon nature. And at the same time, because of the kind of animals we are, human beings interact with nature and change nature and so you know like all through Europe and I talk about this in the book the 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 places that are often regarded as wildernesses were in fact shaped by human beings over thousands of thousands of years and of course the Australian continent is a paradigmatic example of that shaped by indigenous people over tens of thousands of years but regarded by the British as wilderness but In the earlier phases of capitalism, because people were much closer to the land, they were very conscious that, in fact, humanity was a species that related to nature. And as you say, when you look today, we often think of working-class people as indifferent to questions of environmentalism, you know, some bullshit hippie stuff. Workers don't care about anything like that. But, in fact, when you look at the really early manifestations of the working class, as you say, one of the things that the early workers' movements playing again and again is what industrialization has done, driven them off the land, condemned them to these smoky factories, meant they never see any trees or any nature, and they feel this as a tremendous loss. And it takes generations before working class people get accustomed to the idea that nature is something out there rather than something they interact with on a daily basis. And again, I think, when you think about it, it's a tremendous resource for hope. It's not that ordinary people hate nature. Ordinary people have never hated nature. It's the capitalists who hate nature. And if people are given a chance, actually, they feel very passionate about their relationship with the natural world.
2: So one of the things you said at the outset, I think, was about the fact that we've lost the sense of the historical opposition, protest movements, political movements, not only opposing this Industrialization, but, of course, the effects on the environment. So just in relationship to, to working-class people and historically opposition to the factory system that depended so much on uh, fossil fuels, uh, particularly coal, what sort of actions did people take? What sort of protests were people involved in to, to voice their antagonism towards these new systems that destroyed both people and nature?
3: Yeah, I mean... I I draw a little bit on um, Andres Malm's book, Fossil Capital, which is a fantastic account of this period of early industrialization. He's got this really fascinating article about the development of coal power in Britain, and he makes the argument that, in fact, for a long time, water power was, in fact, far more effective than coal power and far more technologically advanced. The reason why the Industrial Revolution centred on coal was because Coal gave the bosses mobility and made it much easier to control their workforce. So it was much more to do with class power than with efficiency or anything else. And he gives these examples... that I I cite in the book of um, strikes of early workers in Manchester where they're striking against the conditions that these early factories are incredibly dangerous and they're marching through the city chanting, stop the smoke, conscious that, you know, so it's not an anti-climate change protest or anything like that, but they're conscious that coal is something that is being used Against them and against their 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 interests, and you know, like I think it, it, in some ways it, it it's a good example of like what kind of future environmental protests might look like. Not necessarily that people all stand up at once and say, right, we're going to act against climate change, but increasingly the environmental crisis is impinging on ordinary people's lives in a way that it almost inevitably becomes an industrial issue. So, you know, I saw in the news again that Amazon is unionising again. There's another important union vote happening in um, Amazon. And and in the book I I, I write about, okay, Amazon is the paradigm of the modern factory. One of the things that's happening all through Amazon factories, well, there are two things that's happening. One is which these factories are so hot that with the increased temperatures of climate change, workers are literally fainting that often the bosses have ambulances outside the warehouses to carry people out as they faint in in increased heat. But also um, Amazon was a hotbed of COVID. Now, COVID is not a direct consequence of climate change, but it is directly connected to the environmental crisis more broadly because it's a result of the increasing human encroachment on nature, deforestation and, and so forth. And so if you are engaged in unionising something like Amazon, you have to start addressing these two issues, the increasing temperature, which is a result of climate change, but also these new viruses that are also a result of the environmental crisis. So you might not begin the, the, the unionisation drive by saying we're mobilising against climate change, but the, the logic of the, of the unionisation itself forces you to start to tackle these issues, and that's quite similar to what was happening in the 19th century, I think.
2: All right, this is another big ticket one or a big philosophical issue that I've been interested in, Jeff, since I've been doing the climate work. And again, I say it because I really value the way you you want to connect up communities, organizations, movements to confront climate change and also to put aside or undermine this lie that you know environmentalism is something um, for, for a very particular citizen and not for the majority. One thing I'm interested in, so this started when I did my fellowship on climate justice. One of the things that I realised is that I honestly can't remember speaking to an Aboriginal person who didn't privilege and value country over industrial expansion so yeah you could be talking to you know, professionally educated aboriginal people you could be talking to the new aboriginal middle class or you could be talking to an aboriginal kid out in the northern suburbs of melbourne who was really struggling to get a decent education but inherently overwhelmingly each of those people would value country over exploitation now i'm not suggesting because i think your book highlights this that there are people beyond indigenous groups who don't care proactively about the environment, don't care proactively about the land. But I wonder to what extent do we have the capacity to become, and I, I, I think the term's a bit clumsy, to allow ourselves to become more philosophically educated or to ensure that we can become more educated about the inherent value of land, that land is not just there for exploitation. And one of the things that concerns me at the moment, Jeff, is that one of the outcomes of following all the material from Glasgow on COP26 or 27, whatever it was, is that the marketplace loves renewables now. So renewables are going to take off because the market loves it. What is contained in that is the market is interested in renewables because there's money to be made, not because it it will help the environment, help the planet. So when you think of that, my, my think is, well, when the market in 5, 10, 20 year times think that something else will make it more money, they will undermine renewables, the same way you've talked about car culture in the US. So I'm interested in to what extent we have the capacity to produce an understanding of place and country. Country should never serve the market.
3: There's a lot there, and I'm... Sure, you're not going to be able to address most of it, but I, look, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because today I was just reading um, an article about the Adam Smith Institute. I don't mm-hmm. know how many people saw saw this um, piece, but it's a, a neoliberal think tank, and it's just put out a piece calling for the moon to be privatized. Mm-hmm. It Says like <laughs> the, the the moon is publicly owned, and Why this not? is holding back exploration. And it means that. You know, they make that old argument, which I, I talk about in the book, the tragedy of the commons, because the moon is collectively owned, nobody is taking responsibility for all the space junk. And if only we, people could be renting the moon out, then the market would do, you know, um, its magic. And, you know, it's kind of a patrol or provocation, I guess, but it is symptomatic of the way that market arguments now have been so normalised, not just on the right but also on the left, and in the climate movement. In fact, a lot of people, you know, who talk about themselves as environmentalists will put forward purported solutions to climate change, which are essentially about forms of marketization. So, you know, cap and trade systems are about turning the environment into tradable commodities on the basis that the market is the only way that we can address this problem. And the thing about that is, is that it's bullshit. In fact, non-market systems are far older than market systems. In fact, commons, commonly honed areas, mm-hmm. have been a staple of pre-capital civilizations since time immemorial. People have very sophisticated systems for managing them. And one of our biggest problems in addressing the climate change is this internalisation of a market logic which says that Unless we find a market incentive, nothing will happen. I mean, I, I talk in the book about a, an IMF plan to put prices on whales, you know, a similar kind of thing. And as I said then, like most normal people, if we found a whale that was beached, you know, on the ocean, we wouldn't need a fucking market to, decide, to tell us what to do. We would just push it back into the, into the ocean or whatever it is you do with whales. The idea that markets are the only way that humans can organise themselves is something that we really have to knock on the head. So we've
2: got a question, the first one from Judith. Um, Judith asks, ordinary people can't actually achieve much because of relative poverty. However, one way workers can make a difference is by rebuilding mass campaigns like we've seen in the past, such as the green Bands. And then she asks, is this the best way forward?
3: What a good question! And in fact, the green bands is something that I talk about in, in in the book. I mean, people on the left will know the story of the Builders Labour's Federation in New South Wales and the green bands by which they saved both historical sections of Sydney, but also um, areas of a- environmental worth. But We tell this story again and again because it is so incredibly inspiring. Here is a blue-collar workforce, one of the most rough-and-tumble industries that, that, that you could imagine, these ordinary people getting together and saying, actually, we don't think the developers should be determining what our city looks like. We don't think working people's suburbs should be shaped by people who just want to make a buck at it. And um, we think that the people who are involved in, you know, working on these sites should have some say in what happens. And it is astonishing, if you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, the condescending editorials in papers like the Sydney Morning Herald about these ignorant builders, labourers, how dare they express any opinion on, um, you know, what should happen to Sydney. And, of course, now everyone says that the areas they save, like the Rocks, you know in Sydney are ah, the most beautiful areas in Sydney that the green spaces they saved are these invaluable you know assets to the nature at the time almost all of the great and the good in Australian society said that these people were scum and they had no right to be making these decisions so yes I, I think I agree with where that question was coming from the the green bans were a long time ago but on the other hand the Working class now is more powerful than it ever has been. And we should not forget that the last couple of years we saw the biggest ever protests in human history, which are the Black Lives Matter campaigns, mobilize more people than any other issue ever in world's history. So, you know.
2: Thanks. So we're gonna to go to our just we'll go to our next question from Kay, but if I could just add something to that very, very briefly, I think that I talked about feeling at times debilitated by the struggle in relationship to climate change. And one of the things, you know, which is not surprising. When you feel debilitated, the only way to respond to that is sit in the corner or find like-minded people who have the energy to do something. And whatever else, you're going to feel a lot better because you're out there doing stuff. And I think it will energise you, and it does lead to outcomes. So I just wanted to add that. But we have a question from Kate, and Kate would like to know what Jeff thinks about the role of social media. Um, what role can social media play in helping us to combat climate change?
3: I guess I would say it's a gift and a curse, isn't it? I mean, social media. Okay, so we're in a situation now where um, countercultural movements and protest campaigns can spread in ways that they have never done before. You know, if anyone's ever read about the history of something like the Russian Revolution, you get a situation where the news of the revolution is spreading on ships. Like sailors would come to land land and they would tell, hey, here's what we did in Russia, and then there'd be a series of strikes. That doesn't happen now. It It spreads instantly. So, you know, and that, that's a tremendous resource and we should all make use of it. At the same time, I just want to reiterate what Tony said, there is no substitute for actually being physically connected with other people, organising in your workplace or being part of a movement, and the social media is no substitute for that. There's a difference between being at that climate strike where all those young people are, you know, coming out with their homemade placards and saying that, you know, that they don't want to accept a world of climate change. There's a difference between that and being in the most kind of the wittiest Twitter hashtag that there might possibly be. So social media is a useful tool, but, you know, it's, it's a limited tool as well.
2: Yeah, and it can be a menace in regard to the level of misinformation that can be spread on on social media as we've clearly become evident, not only in regard to climate but with with the um, COVID issue. So I've got a question from Bill and this is the sort of, this is a question that I suppose is the one that, that also sort of permeated while I was reading the book. So it's it's my, my pessimistic brain or the brain that thinks, can this be done? And I think Bill is really putting a challenge to, to you. And he says, Tony and Jeff, I'm going to defer to Jeff. But he says, are you suggesting there is a path to unwind the dominance of corporate government and unsustainable consumption? So clearly I think Bill's saying this is, this is a massive challenge and how is it possible? You clearly think it is possible, but... Yeah. Could you address that for everyone, including Bill?
3: Look, you'd be an idiot, right, if you thought we were in a good situation now, you know? And whatever else it might be, I'm not a complete idiot. I'm not trying to pretend that, you know, that, that that's, the solution to climate change is around the, the, the corner. I mean, we are in for a bumpy ride, and I think over the next few years things are going to get pretty bad, but... Is there a solution? Is there an alternative to to, to to climate change? Well, if you reject the logic of the market, if you look back to how previous social formations have organised production, then you realise we don't have to have the we don't have to have the way we interact with nature determined by the commodification of labour. We can actually make decisions about what we do, how we do and when we do it. And as soon as you phrase a question like that, as soon as you start to think, okay, what would we do if our priorities weren't determined by market forces? Well, actually we know all of the answers to climate change. We have the, the it's not a technical problem. We know what, you know, we know that we have to stop fossil fuel production. We know that there are various alternatives in terms of electrification. We know that there are some things that work and some things that, we, that don't work. The problem is that there is no economic imperative under capitalism in order to do any of those things. So as a result, we faff around and, you know, like, as Tony says, okay, there's currently a huge interest from green capitalists in various kinds of renewables. This, I would suggest, is a tremendous danger because the problem is not one kind of technology. The problem is the priorities of a capitalist system. And, in fact, a green capitalism will be just as destructive as a brown capitalism. And um, I mean, there's a complicated argument and I won't, go, I won't go into that, but I think what we have to do is have the intellectual courage as a starting point to imagine a different kind of social order. And that's the argument I make in the book and people might not agree with it, but I think that's what we have to start talking about it because the one thing we can be sure of, we cannot go on like this. There is an alternative because there needs to be an alternative and it's up to us whether we seize the alternative.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Just a couple of things in closing. My interest in this area has been in protection of country and and First Nations rights of country. And one of the things I've always said when I'm speaking to Aboriginal people who will say and rightly say, "Well, yeah, we didn't fuck the country up, you know. Why? Why, how, why are we the ones who call on now to save everyone?" And what I suggest to people is. In, entirely the truth we didn't fuck the country up or the land up but there's no way that we can solve this climate crisis any of us on our own or just within our own limited communities and we do have to find ways to to link up politically we do have to find ways to find common ground because it is as um the questioner bill asked you know we're dealing with large corporate power so we've got to find connections with each other and that's vital just to alert people just conclusion. The title of the um, conclusion is Make Hope Great Again.
3: See what I did there?
2: Yeah. But <laughs> what I love about this conclusion, Jeff, is you you, you you're offering really clear examples of, of a way to move forward. So don't be guilt-tripped into su- supposed solutions based entirely on personal responsibility. Um learn to argue, expect opposition, find collective projects to join and support. So for people interested in the book, I think this conclusion after a really um, remarkable set of chapters that work both for me as a reader historically and in the contemporary sense the other thing that you're doing Jeff is that you are it's a call to arms the book is a call to arms and you offer as far as I can see tangible outcomes that will help us um, in this struggle together so I want to thank you and ask again I'll thank you very much and thank the audience in a final brief Question: Having finished the book, so thinking I, I did ask you what you set out to do, but having finished the book, do you believe that there is power in literature and the power between writers and readers that can enact change?
3: Oh, this is a question about which I have really conflicted and um, and complicated responses. Actually, going back to I think a discussion we had at a Sydney Writers Festival a long time ago, I think ideas matter, and I think you know what we really need is people to start engaging with ideas outside the very narrow consensus on climate change but ideas matter in the context in which they can be put into action so the ideas by themselves books by themselves don't make any difference okay. you know we can write all the books that we want what we actually need is a movement of ordinary people who can put these ideas into practice and so you know that's why doing events where you can actually talk to people in some ways you know they're more rewarding than writing the actual books themselves.
1: I don't know. I feel like I want to raise my hands above my head and just sort of do some sort of solidarity. That's what I feel like I want to do, Tony. I feel like I want everybody in this meeting to come together and say, okay, we heard this. What do we do now? It's not enough perhaps to just understand what Jeff is saying or what you're saying. It seems to me in this educated group of people in this community that we have here that perhaps we can do something better than that. Perhaps we can just keep talking. Perhaps we can start meetings. Perhaps we can actually go out and purchase Jeff's book. Because <laughs> even though he says that books don't matter, can you believe that he said that? We need to be able to quote from him. We do here at this readings and scribe publishers <laughs> event. We need to be able to quote from books. We need People like you, Jeff and Tony, to give us the words to use, and you've done so tonight, so eloquently, and from the bottom of my heart, from my children's heart. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you,
1: Jeff. We'll see you in the shop. See everyone. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Good night,
0: everyone. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations. Plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews News or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. production for this podcast was by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.